0: How do you respond to suffering? (laughs) Suffering is a common experience for everyone, whether it comes in the form of sickness, financial crisis, even death. If you're a Christian, did you know that suffering for Christ is something that you can expect as you follow him in this world? This is something that Jesus himself told us would happen to a certain degree for everyone who would follow him. How have you responded to suffering for Christ in your own life? How have you responded to the suffering of others around you? As you already know, because it's a common experience for all of us, suffering can lead to sadness, sorrow, complaining, grumbling, bitterness... But did you know that in the midst of the hurt and pain that can result from suffering for Christ, it is possible to experience joy? The joy that is not tied to your circumstance, but instead a joy that is linked to the God that we trust in. We can only imagine what it must have been like for the Philippian Christians who were worried about Paul because of his imprisonment. And about the suffering that they themselves were experiencing as they stood for Christ in a hostile environment such as Philippi. So this morning, this brings us to our main point. In today's passage, we see that suffering for Christ serves as a means to advance the gospel. Suffering for Christ serves as a means to advance the gospel. This is what the Apostle Paul wanted the Philippians to know then. And it is what, by God's grace, he wants us to know today. So, if you're taking notes today, Paul wants us to know three things about suffering for Christ. Paul wants us to know that suffering serves to advance the gospel. But it also requires fixing your eyes on the gospel. And this will lead to enjoying the prize of the gospel. And these are our three points. Suffering serves to advance the gospel. Suffering requires fixing your eyes on the gospel. And this will lead to enjoying the prize of the gospel. So please turn with me to Philippians chapter 1. We will be reading verses 12 through 18. And if you're using one of the black pew Bibles in front of you, if you open it to the middle and turn to the right, You will find it, if you think in terms of General Electric Power Company, Galatians, Ephesians, uh, Philippians, and then before Colossians, you will find it there. It's a good way to, that I've used to memorize how to find this. And Philippians 1, 12 through 18. This is the word of the Lord. knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaimed Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. So our passage today comes after Paul's greeting and prayer of thanksgiving for his memories of the Philippians which he made with much joy. And this letter was a response to the Philippians' financial support and personal f- support that they had offered by sending Epaphroditus, one of their own church members, to help Paul with his own needs while he was on has- house arrest at Rome. And in his prayer, Paul helped us see last week that it is God who, by His grace, began a good work in, a- in each Christian in the church of Philippi, which included their love for and partnership with Paul for the gospel, partaking with Paul in the grace of suffering and defending the gospel, and growing in their knowledge and discernment of the gospel so that they would be found faithful at Christ's return, filled with the fruit of righteousness for the glory of God. And our passage today opens with one of the purposes that Paul had in mind when he responded or when he wrote to the Philippians. And this is to inform them of his circumstances at Rome. So this brings us to our first point this morning. Suffering serves to advance the gospel. And we find this in verses 12 through 14. If you look at verse 12 with me, I'll read it for us again. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. This was a common way of introducing and emphasizing what was important to the writer here we have the apostle paul now a much older man informing the philippians that all is well that his circumstances were actually turning out for good but the question that one must ask is well what had happened to paul well paul was referring to his difficult circumstances namely his journey to Rome, and his imprisonment there. And for more details on this, I'd encourage you to take some time and read through Acts 21 through 28. But as a brief overview, in Acts 21, we find that Paul had made his way to Jerusalem with his team and was warmly received by some of the Christians who informed him that some Jews were spreading lies about him, saying that Paul was teaching um, Jews to abandon Moses and their customs, which made them angry and wanted to kill him. After going to the temple, some Jews stirred up a crowd. They seized Paul, dragged him out, and tried to kill him. And this is the pattern that we find in these chapters in Acts twenty-one through twenty-eight. Word went up to the soul, to the commander of the soldier that chaos was taking place and he immediately had some soldiers rush down to take Paul into custody. And from there, Paul began to give a defense of the gospel before the Jerusalem mob, but was rejected and people cried out for him to be put to death. Now you can imagine Paul preaching the gospel, wanting the um, good for these people, for them to repent and to be saved. But the the, the people would reject him. Um, So much so that some of them planned to kill him. Um, They planned an ambush. And by God's grace, uh, Paul's nephew found out about this and he made it known to Paul. And Paul was able to get that message out to the commanders, which led to Paul being protected by the Roman guard. And so we find here that Paul began to give a defense of the gospel before the Jerusalem mob. Um, This began a long journey where he was transferred from place to place to be interrogated as to why many wanted to put him to death. But they couldn't find a legitimate reason to do so. So Paul went from place to place making a defense before governors and kings and eventually made his way to Rome to appeal before Caesar. All while being protected by the Roman guard. Now Paul was on house arrest at Rome awaiting trial before the emperor and it is from here that he writes to the Philippians. Now, from a human perspective, it was understandable for them to be concerned about his well being, because this was bad news. Imagine for someone to have a price on their head, not knowing where attacks would come from, that would raise great concerns. Imagine you having a loved one who was in this situation. Now, we have to remember that the Philippians had a great love for Paul and Paul for the Philippians. As one who had been arrested and and had a price on his head, this would make anyone worried. But Paul wanted to give them insight from a divine perspective. Paul wanted them to know that his imprisonment, as bad as it may have seemed, was actually good news, because it had really served to do the very thing that the people wanted to prevent him from doing, which was to preach the gospel. How? Well, this brings us to the first of two ways that Paul's circumstances served to advance the gospel. The first way is through evangelism, and we see that in verse 13 so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. The first way that we see that his suffering was sur- serving to advance the gospel is that it had been made clear throughout the whole imperial guard that Paul's imprisonment was for Christ. Well, how would this have happened? The the Roman um, guard how is it that the imperial guard would come to know of Paul's, of Paul's link to Christ? Well, in those days, any prisoner who was sent to Rome in cases of uh, making appeals uh, were put under the watch of the imperial guard, which was also known as the Praetorian Guards. And th- this guard was, or were the em- emperor's own elite troop of soldiers which were established to protect him. And part of their duty included keeping in custody all prisoners who were to be tried by the emperor. And in Acts 28.20, we learn that Paul was bound in chains. And this makes reference to a short chain that linked the prisoner and the soldier together, thus making it impossible to escape. These soldiers guarded Paul 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, For four hour shifts at a time. And during his imprisonment, Paul was given the freedom to have visitors and to write letters and to do other ministry. We also know from Acts 28 that Paul's house arrest lasted two years. Now can you imagine what it it must have been like to be chained up to Paul four hours a day for 24 hours a day? As Paul prayed to God, as Paul would sing worship to God, as Paul had conversations with those that would come visit him, as Paul was writing his letters, maybe Paul would recite the letters and ask the guard, how does this sound? (laughs) We know that Paul had a heart for evangelism, that he had a heart for the lost. So we can imagine Paul taking every opportunity to share the gospel with each one of these guards and thus making it known that Paul was imprisoned because of his allegiance to Christ. God used Paul's imprisonment to pave the way for him to preach the gospel to an elite group of guards in Rome. Now, as Pastor Jeremy preached a few weeks ago, the gospel is God's power to save. The preached gospel is God's power to save lost people. It is God's power to save those who are dead spiritually. It is God's power to give life to those who hated God, which many of us did at one point before we were saved. And it is this gospel that Paul was preaching to all of these guards but we also see in verse 13 that it wasn't only the guards that it became known that Paul's imprisonment was for Christ. It was to all the rest. Paul says that others were evangelized too. Paul's message also became known to those who came to visit him. And this would include members of the Jewish community, as we see in Acts 28, Roman Christians, uh, possibly um, family members of, of these guards, and even those belonging to the house of, or household of Caesar, as we see later, later on in this uh, letter in chapter 4, verse 22. And one commentator writes that the members of Caesar's household did not necessarily refer to his actual family. Instead, it referred to those in the imperial civil service. The palace uh, officials, secretaries, people in charge of revenues, and those responsible for the day-to-day administration of the empire. So we see that there were many people that were influenced, that were hearing the word of God preached to them. And there were many people that were coming to know that Paul was in prison for the cause of Christ, for preaching the gospel of salvation. And it's in light of this that Paul writes to the Philippians with joy that his imprisonment has actually served to advance the gospel. In other words, Paul was saying, Philippians, I want you to know that what has happened to me has actually turned out for good. My desire is to make Christ known, and my circumstances have not hindered my ministry. They've actually enhanced it. This was also a joyful report, because Paul's life as a Christian was always given to making Christ known. Paul was joyful because Jesus was, in a sense, um, receiving the reward for his suffering. Christ's work of coming to seek and save those who, who are lost was being advanced, and that brought Paul great joy. Imagine how refreshing this must have been for the Philippians to know. That what humanly seemed like something to be worried about actually ended up being good news. Now, Paul's joy that the gospel was being advanced through his suffering was not without ignoring the reality of physical pain and discomfort. Because I'm assuming that Paul, there were many things that Paul maybe wanted to do, but he had to be chained up to a Roman soldier. Which would make it crazy to live that way 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. Imagine trying to sleep with somebody you know, chained up next to you, you wouldn't be able to position yourself however you want. That gets uncomfortable after some time. But not only that, imagine all of the liberties that we have while not being chained up to anyone. Those were limited to Paul. So Paul doesn't say that his joy was not met with physical pain and discomfort because he experienced these things. What Paul didn't do, though, was he didn't let his circumstances distract him from doing what Christ had called him to do, which was to preach the gospel. Now, Christian, I'd like you to take a few seconds and try to think of times where maybe you have had the opportunity to stand up for Christ, where you've known that you're standing up for Christ may results in persecution or some kind of rejection and you chose not to stand for Christ. Think about what would lead you to do this. Would it lead you to fear rejection? Persecution? Shame? Physical pain? Have you bought into the lie that this would not help in any way, shape, or form to advance the proclamation of Jesus Christ. While we may not experience the same kind of suffering that our brothers and sisters experience in other parts of the world, we experience it in our own ways. But Paul wants us to see this morning that suffering for Christ isn't necessarily bad news, It can help to advance the gospel. Paul wants us to know that suffering for Christ, that sharing in Christ's suffering, serves as a way to rejoice in that no matter how a person responds to your presentation of the gospel, it's a win-win situation for you. Just think about it this way. If you as a Christian were to share the gospel with a co-worker who you feared retaliation, rejection, or physical pain or hurt from, there's only three things that could happen. One, your co-worker would believe and be saved. And that's a good thing. Two, your co-worker would not believe and reject you. And we would think that that's a bad thing, but actually that's a good thing and 3 if we were to share the gospel with a coworker but they decided not to believe the gospel then right then and there but they went away thinking about it that's also a good situation for you it's a win-win win situation for us because when someone is saved and believed and believes god gets the glory christ is exalted When somebody rejects us and doesn't believe, God still gets glory because we are obeying the God who has called us to share the gospel. And because we trust Him and we believe in Him, we are being obedient to what He has promised to do, which is that His word will not return void, that He will work according to His goodwill and pleasure. And three, if a person doesn't believe and repent right then and there, But they go away thinking about what you've shared. Our responsibility is not to save people. Our responsibility is to be faithful with sharing the gospel and letting the Holy Spirit work in a person's heart. And who knows, the Lord may bring somebody else the next day, the next week, the next month, and use that person to build on what you shared and then bring that person to salvation. And thus, Christ gets the glory. So Christian, I want to encourage you to not turn from suffering from Christ. Because suffering for Christ can serve as a means to advance the gospel. So Paul wanted the Philippians to know that God used his suffering to advance the gospel through evangelism. But there's also a second way that it served to advance the gospel. Which brings us to our 2nd subpoint. The second way that it advanced the gospel was by building confidence in Christians to do the same. There in verse 14 we read, Paul continues um, writing, he says, And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Now, how do you think people would be tempted to respond if they were to find out that their leader had been persecuted and imprisoned for the faith? One would think that it would lead people to hide and maybe even abort the mission altogether. Who would want to endure physical harm, limitations to one's lifestyle, be chained up, and having one's freedoms taken away when one's leader is suffering? Like, what do you do? What if Paul had responded with bitterness and grumbling, questioning God? Those following him might have been tempted to do the same. But praise God that the exact opposite of this is what took place. Rather than running from trouble... Most of the Christians in Rome grew in confidence by, God, by Paul's imprisonment and became much more bold in proclaiming the word. They were, they had been built in courage and even dared to continue advancing Paul's apostolic message regarding Christ. What Paul writes here is that these Christians were emboldened to proclaim Christ to a much greater degree. Their courage... Had risen to new heights, according to one commentator, rather than being intimidated. They knew that their proclamation of the word involved risk of also being imprisoned, like Paul. They understood the consequences that could follow as a result of preaching Christ as the only Lord and not Caesar, yet they did not fear imprisonment or the consequences. They believed that God could also use their imprisonment and their suffering to advance the gospel. So to recap, Paul wanted the Philippians to know that God was using his suffering to advance the gospel through evangelism, and by building confidence in other Roman Christians to boldly speak the word. And while this was great news, Paul also acknowledged something that he wanted the Philippians to know. Which leads us to our second point. Paul wanted the Philippians to know that suffering well requires fixing your eyes on the gospel. Why does suffering well require one to fix one's eyes on the gospel? Well, being that Paul's suffering was being used as a means to advance the gospel through his personal evangelism and by giving others confidence in their proclamation of Christ, it didn't come without trouble. If you look at verse 15 with me, it reads, Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. Apparently, some of the people who gained confidence to preach Christ were doing it for different reasons. Paul pointed out that some preach Christ from envy and rivalry, and others from goodwill. So let's take a look at the first group, those who preach Christ from selfishness. These are some of the things that characterize them, according to Paul. We see, we see these things in verse 15, 17, and 18. Some preach Christ from envy and rivalry. They proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. And they do so in pretense. Paul writes that some of the folks who were encouraged had wrong motives. These men were doing something right. They were preaching Christ, that is, the message of Christ's life, death, and resurrection. And we know that they were preaching the right message because Christ didn't condemn them, um, didn't condemn their message like he did other false teachers in some of his other letters. Unfortunately, while they had the right message, they had wrong Motives. They were driven by selfishness, meaning they weren't trying to partner with Paul in his, in his suffering. As a matter of fact, they desired to afflict Paul in his imprisonment. They had ulterior motives. And some scholars believe that they did not mean to cause physical harm or injury, but rather they wanted to stir up annoyance, trouble in Paul's spirit by reminding him of his limitations and restraints. So the fact that Paul had no problem with their message shows us that the problem was personal. Now, why would they do this? It's possible that these men were jealous of Paul's ministry, or that they saw Paul's circumstances as being um, incompatible with with being a servant of Christ. One thing we can gain from this is that they misunderstood the sovereignty of God. And how God works to advance the gospel even through suffering. Another thing that we gain is that these motives and characteristics are found in the list of the works of the flesh that the Bible warns about. In Galatians five nineteen through 21 that the works of the flesh include strife, jealousy, selfish ambitions, envy, and anything similar. Now, if you're visiting us this morning, we're thankful that you're here with us. We praise God for bringing you here to sit under the Word of God and to hear what God has to say. Now, I wonder this morning, what do you look for in a person who claims to be a Christian to determine if he or she is a genuine Christian? Do you look to the car that they drive to determine if they've been Blessed by God? Do you look at their house, their lifestyle? Do you look to their message, to their motives? Our passage this morning helps us see that what distinguishes a genuine Christian from a non-genuine one is not just what one talks about. So it's not just talking about Jesus, but also the motives behind it. This is important to know because we live in a culture where many proclaim Christ, but sadly do so out of wrong motives. Not too long ago, I would say maybe a year or two ago, there was a popular TV show called Preachers of L.A. Where it was a show about many pastors who proclaim to follow Jesus and preach the message of Jesus. But... As each pastor was interviewed or is interviewed, they talk about the motives for why they have joined ministry. Some said that it provided a way to have cash flow to be able to pursue their other goals. Others did so because of the praise that came with the position of being a pastor. And so we see that once proclamation of Christ is good, But it's not good when the motives are wrong. And this is what Paul wanted the Philippians to know. Now, on the other hand, there was a group that gained confidence to continue preaching Christ out of love. And these are some of the things that characterize this group. Others preached from goodwill. They preached out of love, knowing that Paul was put there for the defense of the gospel. And they did so in truth. These were folks who had love for Paul and were driven by godly motives. The words used to describe them help us see a few things. We see that they were happy to take up the task of preaching Christ at the risk of ending up like Paul. We know this because they did it out of love. But I want to draw your attention to another word in verse 16. These Christians were motivated by their knowing or understanding that Paul was put in prison for the defense of the gospel. This group of Christians, or Christian preachers, had come to understand that God's plan of salvation could not and would not be stopped by anything or anyone. They understood God's sovereignty, how He rules the universe, and God's wisdom, how He works all things together for His glory. And they knew that Paul's imprisonment was no coincidence. It was ordained by God for the defense of the gospel. And this, uh, these words, was put, carries the meaning of to be given a military order. So because they had divine insight about God's mission in Paul's life, they were not embarrassed to be identified with Paul. Instead, they gladly join in Paul's mission out of love for him and out of love for the Lord. Now, to go back to our point, why does suffering well require fixing your eyes on the gospel? Well, in Paul's response to these ill-willed preachers, we see that he kept the main thing the main thing. Meaning, Paul cared more about Christ being known than the personal problems that the selfish preachers had against him. Keeping his eyes fixed on the gospel allowed him to remember Christ's mission, which was also his mission and the mission of every Christian. This was his top priority. Though the selfish preachers thought they could afflict him, uh, Paul's gospel goggles helped him from falling into their trap. We see Paul following in the footsteps of Jesus here, don't we? Jesus one, was one who modeled this for us perfectly. As a matter of fact, Peter writes regarding Jesus in, in these ways, in 1 Peter two twenty through 24 For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God." that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. We see that when Jesus suffered, he suffered in the place for all of his people. And one pastor says that in doing so, Jesus bore our sins so that our condemnation became his because he took it away. Meaning the suffering that Christians experience are not condemnation for sin. They are disciplined for holiness. Now, Paul knew that, and he believed that. He knew that he wasn't suffering for sin. He knew that God was using it for good and for God's glory. And the second thing that we see is that Paul was following the example that Christ had set for his own people on how to live. Once again, we see that Christ died for people, according to one pastor so that people would suffer like Christ. Paul knew that he was called not to fight back, but to entrust himself to God. He was able to do this because he fixed his eyes on the gospel and what Christ had done for him. So to recap, Paul wants us to know that suffering serves to advance the gospel But it requires fixing your eyes on the gospel. And this leads us to our last point suffering serves as a way to enjoy the prize of the gospel. Paul learned to look at his circumstances through these gospel lenses. He kept the bigger picture of God's work in mind, he knew that his life was not a waste. Paul knew that he would behold Jesus at the end of his race here on earth, so long as he continued in Jesus' footsteps. So with this in mind, Paul called the Philippians to remember what was of most importance, and he called them to do the same. Paul's joy was not tied to his circumstances, rather, it was tied to the Jesus on whom he had set his eyes on. When we look at the big picture of what God is doing, by fixing our eyes on the gospel, we too will be filled with joy. Because our joy comes not because of the pain and suffering we encounter, but in spite of that. It comes from knowing that Christ walked down this past first so that sinful people like ourselves would be found and saved. To think that God would count us worthy of participating in His work of salvation... And bringing glory to Christ as a result is the best and only lasting joy that we can attain here and now and in the world to come. Even though there were some who preach with wrong motives, Paul responded not by attacking them, but by trusting that the gospel would do its work and advance, maybe even in those preachers' lives, which would lead to Christ being known by their preaching and those around them. So in conclusion, suffering will come at some point. And when that happens, we must keep the three things in mind. Suffering serves to advance the gospel, but it requires fixing your eyes on the gospel. And fixing your eyes on the gospel will lead you to enjoying the prize of the gospel, which is Christ Himself. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise You for being an all-powerful and all-wise God. We praise You for Your great work of salvation that You have done in this world which you yourself planned in eternity past for the glory of your name. We praise you that it is you who has started a good work in us and that it is you who is working in us through our suffering, through the different circumstances and trials of life, so that we would be sanctified, so that your people would grow in their love and and desire for you. Father, we praise you for the privilege of being called your own, and being invited to participate in your work of salvation. Father, we pray that you would help us to become more of a people that doesn't fear suffering, but that we would see suffering in light of eternity, in light of what you are doing in this world to save people. We pray that we would enter into your love, into your joy of saving people, so that we too would rejoice when people come to see their need for you and be saved. We pray, Lord, that the joy that we will experience in heaven, that that joy would be ours even now, as you work in our hearts, so that we would live for the glory of your name. It's in Christ's name that we ask these things. Amen.